So, uh, good evening, everyone. We've been speaking, as you know, the last uh, couple of sessions about um, significance of Radha Tattva, and typically in the evenings, um, a, a, a typical scenario from which we, we deviated last night, um, uh, we uh, asked for questions, so I'll do that tonight. And... Uh, See where where it goes. It's fifty percent up to you. <laughs> so, are there any questions? I saw a uh, something that interested me comes to mind um, about a week or so ago. It was a uh, a monk sitting on the sidewalk with a sign. It said, uh, ask a monk any topic. So I wanted to get my own sign. It said, inquire within, ask a monk any topic. I'm thinking of going to Asheville and sitting on the corner <laughs> with a sign like that. And, uh, okay. Stay, so I'll get, stay engaged that way. So. Any subject? <laughs> yes. This may be a silly question, but we're, we've been talking about absolute and relative, and in my mind, I don't know. It almost seems like everything is relative, and the things that you could just say are completely absolute would be less than because everything's in relation to. I mean, like, Krishna reciprocates with his devotee based on how his devotee approaches him. Everything in the material world is according to time, place, and circumstance. What, I guess my question is kind of, what is absolute? Maybe I should withdraw that. <laughs> So did everybody hear the question? The question is about the the idea that there's a relative and, and an absolute um, with regard to, let's say, the teaching, um, and there's many ways that that can be talked about. But in thinking about it, Krishna Chaitanya is saying that well, well, it seems like there's more relative than there is absolute, and what is really absolute, everything seems relative, is kind of what he said. Um, right? Yeah. That's kind of the I question mean, I don't have so far. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the question. I don't really have a problem with that. And yeah, maybe, well, and you know, that's fine, too. And, uh, yeah. Set me straight, please. Or, <laughs> or what is... Uh, you want the absolute truth on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah, what you're saying. Relative to... <laughs> <laughs> relative to the time and circumstance. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Well, I'll, let's just, I'll just uh, talk on the subject and see where we, where, we, where we land with that. But there are absolutes and there are relatives. Uh, now, um, uh, one of the um, characteristics of sharing the teaching is that 
the way in which it will be shared is to some extent determined by the time, the circumstance, by the audience present. Hmm? And so, in presenting the teaching in consideration of such, then one may invoke certain analogies or um, uh, social sensibilities of the time and so forth in which the essential teaching is is couched. You might find, for example, in, in Srimad Bhagavatam, you might find analogies drawn from nature and from the Indian cultural environment um, to uh, make a point. Now, analogies, of course, don't prove anything, but they're ways of explaining things that help us get a handle on them and so forth. So you might find that from what may be called a pre-scientific time, an analogy about how nature works, that upon investigation under greater scrutiny in modern times, we find that nature doesn't exactly work like that. Hmm. There was a way in which people thought nature worked, and it's a minor sense, and um, and then you can look at it many years later after, again, looking at it with a microscope or a telescope and, and say, well, it doesn't actually work like that. But the analogy itself is relative, and it's a package only in which the philosophical or theological point is being um, uh, presented. So the fact that the analogy was a time and place um, analogy, an analogy that was uh, brought the audience in to the teaching because it drew upon something, uh, a way in which they thought about uh, nature at the time. Um, it was very powerful, and the point was made. Now, the point remains uh, true, even though the analogy may break down, and you may say, well, actually, nature doesn't work quite in that way. We looked at it through a microscope or a telescope, and it's otherwise... So you don't throw the baby, proverbial baby, out with the bath water. Hmm? So that would be an example of relativity with regard to uh, presenting the teaching. Hmm? And a good teacher will, you know, would be able to do that. He or she would be able to understand the time and circumstance and, and, and more than that, understand the essential, essential teaching and then couch it, package it in such a way it will be most uh, the audience will most be able to assimilate it to digest it and so forth. So uh, the presenting of the teaching is always has a measure of relativity to it with regard to the method uh, and so forth. The teaching at the same time doesn't change. It doesn't. Not, it does. Uh, uh, however, you make the case, whatever analogy you may use. Um, story you might tell, for example, to explain to someone that there's uh, an atma, and the atma is, is, is different than the, uh, than the body and the mind. Um, the fact that there's a difference between the atma and the body and the mind never changes. So there's an 
an absolute. Right? So, that's it. We were talking earlier about orthodoxy and and um, and fundamentalism and the difference between the two. And I emphasize the point that orthodoxy is the uh, represents the siddhanta, the conclusions of the scripture, which are always t- uh, to be drawn from the text in consideration of sangati or context, hmm? context of which the which which the book. Um, falls within the larger body of sacred texts, um, what revelation is in relation to that which is not revelation, um, context within the genre, the Puranic genre, context within the, within the, uh, the book itself, within the chapter, within, uh, and so forth. And so, to, Draw out the Siddhanta. This this context is 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 all important. That said, <laughs> to really I hope I don't turn you on your head too much here, but the the Siddhanta is also relative hmm, to an extent, in as much as it's an attempt to philosophically represent something that transcends thought. That transcends words um, and so forth. It's not that you can't say anything about it, but you, whatever you say about it, as I said earlier, could never be enough. And uh, for that matter, uh, there are different siddhantas, for example, in different Vaishnav uh, traditions. Of course, they correspond with different bhavas, different uh, attainments, Aishvarya bhav, Madhurya bhav, different types of it, and so on and so forth. And they're all correct. If you listen to the Ramanuja Sampradaya and their Siddhanta, you'll think, <laughs> we don't believe like that. That's wrong. Hmm? But it's just another way of, uh, and from, the, from a different mm, spiritual uh, sentiment and perspective, to explain the nature of transcendence, which in a broad, with a broad brush we call Vaikuntha. And we call Goloka Mahavaikuntha, and we have other names like Goloka and so on and so forth. And um, they look at it that slightly uh, differently than, than we do. The Nimbark Sampradaya, there is the Ragmarg or the Balaba Sampradaya. Same time, take the Balaba Sampradaya, you, you'll hear, you'll hear there a, they have a gradation of souls, of Atmas. Gaudiya Vedanta doesn't teach that. He says all Atmas are, are equal. Hmm? Like Madhva, Balaba also has a gradation of souls, Tamasic souls. Radhasic souls that can never get mukti, and so so, you'll not be attracted to that, or you'll you'll think that to be wrong. Or, but Rupa Goswami, twice in his Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, gives uh, gives it kind of a um, what you call it. He uh, he uh, refers to Pushti Marg to Mariada Marg. The the, the 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 rag and the vaidi of Balaba Sampradaya, when he explains vaidi marg and rag marg in Bhaktivedanta Sindhu at the end of each each section, he says and in, and others call it pushti, and others call it maryada. So he's saying, and Balabas are more or less saying the same thing. If you look at their Siddhanta, you'll think, well, it's, it's very it's very different than ours. So there's a way that it's different. <laughs> 
and the way that it's it's not also. And the way that it's not is in absolutes. In other words, they posit a transcendence that uh, involves a loving uh, intercourse exchange between the, 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 the jiva, the atma, and Bhagwan, which we call Leela. And then they talk about it slightly differently. Obviously, they they um, are also centered on, on Bhagavatam, and, and uh, they worship Krishna, the Balabas, and Balaba was a contemporary of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, was blessed by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So, uh, the, even the Siddhanta has some relativity in a sense. It's a way, it's an attempt to put into words these uh, that which transcends the words. That doesn't mean it's not important for us. It's a relative that takes on an absolute for us as Gaudias who want to attain the windows of opportunity, the bhavas that this particular Siddhanta corresponds with hmm? and, 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 and brings before us. Uh, so it's important that it, 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 to to um, have a handle on the orthodox Siddhanta. You don't want to be heterodox, hmm? and uh, and you want to be kind of in line with the founding acharyas and their interpretation of the sacred texts that now have become canonized as the Gaudiya texts, like Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Chaitanya Charitamrita, these are not accepted by the Ramanujas, by the Nimbarkis, by other Sampradayas in the way that we accept them. Hmm? Of course, they're all drawn from Bhagavatam and Puranas, Upanishads, and so on and so forth, but that's the forming of a particular Sampradaya that's relative in a, in a sense. There's different ways to talk about the Paravyam and, and uh, the means to attain it. All of them, the Vaishnava Sampradayas, obviously are all speaking about bhakti as the means and and some form of prem as the goal and so forth. Um, but it's important uh, for us who have been touched by Gaudiya Sampradaya to understand the Siddhanta and uh, the orthodox uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavas. And so it takes on a kind of an absolute in a, in a, in a smaller sense. In a broader, larger sense, it's, it's somewhat... Uh, Relative. It's not the only way to attain transcendence. Then again, transcendence is variegated. It's the only way to attain certain things, certain ideals within Gaudiya Vaishnavism that are only talked about in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. That the whole Siddhanta, if you will, is a way of talking about and giving access to those bhavas, those windows of opportunity. Them. The, the the Radha Dasyam, or the handmaidens of Radha, this is only available in the Gaudiya Sampradaya. And so the, the whole teaching is an explanation of that. Because the biggest teacher, in a sense, or the biggest canvasser, the person to bring more attention to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu than anyone else was, is Nityananda Prabhu, his other self, who's in a Sakyarasa, it's inevitable that, that a current of Sakyarasa will also be available, and that window will be available in Gaudiya Sampradaya. And then within that, we find this, repeatedly, if you look at the at tradition, you will find that in, in, that in a smaller way, all of the types of Sakyaras are, are, are represented, but that, that, that the, the higher form, or the more intimate, let's say, form of, of Sakyarasa, where the friends of Krishna are involved in his romantic affairs, 
is the, is the type of sakiras that's showcased, um, for example, in this seminal book of Brihad Bhagavatamrita of, of Sanatana Goswami. And that is the type of sakiraasa that you're not going to find out about in any other Vaishnav Sampradaya, not even any other Ragmark uh, Vaishnav Sampradaya. So these are the special, and they're very similar. Hmm? They're very, they're different, but they're they're very similar. Uh, that's a big subject, but uh, so uh, it's important for us to be grounded in the Siddhanta, and it's kind of a relative that's absolute for us in our world. Then, when we're going to talk, we have to have some standard of knowledge by which we can come to a conclusion, some some ground, right? Hmm? So these are this is the siddhanta that we refer to, and then when when we when someone can present that thoughtfully, um, with reason and represented with uh, support from scripture and so forth, then we, we we accept it. We change our ideas, we we discard ideas that we have. You see, the 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 bhava that we want to attain is not different from the tattva. The tattva is the ground, if you will, out of which the bhava will arise. Hmm? That's why Bhaktivinotakur would made the point in his own time that chanting kirtan that is not grounded in sambandagyan, which means in the tattva, in the understanding of the siddhanta, hmm? it, will, it's, w- w- it will not bear any fruit, or if it will, it will bear the fruit of becoming interested in the siddhanta before it, long before it bears the fruit of, of, of bhava. Hmm? So it's important, in a sense, to understand the Siddhanta, to be grounded in that, and, 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 and because we, we're going to hear the teaching, and we're going to hear it through our particular um, material filter, and we're going to misunderstand a lot of it. Hmm? And so there's a need of ongoing association that our understanding can be fine-tuned, and other ideas that we have that are really heterodox, that we may be entertaining, and are therefore are not fueling our practice. The practice will be fueled by proper conceptual orientation. Just like whatever your conceptual orientation to life is, that's going to mandate how you act in life. A particular conceptual orientation, if you have a Nazi you know, orientation, well, you're going to act in a certain way, a fascist orientation in the world, and conversely, a socialistic one, or whatever may be the case. So there's a particular conceptual orientation out of which the kind of bhakti that Rupa Goswami is speaking of arises. So to have that in place, that serves to fuel the practice. Hmm? As much as it's in place, you have good, firm ground to build a practice on. So it's important. And this tattva, in this sense, is not different from the bhava. It's the ground on which, out of which it arises. And we were speaking earlier today how in Vrindavan is beyond the Shruti, beyond the, the Upanishads, beyond the, the scriptures, the, the Radha standing next to Krishna, and that Krishna is bowing down and touching her feet. That's like, that's where it all, it, it's, it's off the map, so to speak. Ramananda Roy was asked by Mahaprabhu to speak about the sadhya and the sadhana the goal and the means to attain it. And he said, and please, whatever you do say, locate it on the scriptural map, represent it properly. So with everything that, that Roy Ramananda offered, then he supported it 
from the scripture. Hmm? And Mahaprabhu said, I don't like that part. I don't think that, this, that's not a very, that doesn't appeal to me. That doesn't sound like a, to say more. And he went deeper and deeper. And at a certain point he said, well, I could say something more, but I don't know, I can't, I can't, okay. I can't support it with the scripture. I've written a poem, but I'm a, you know, I don't show it to the public. That's just my musings. Hmm? That's what Gita Govinda is, the musings of Jayadev Goswami. Hmm? And in his musings, musings? <laughs> in his musings, he thought, as he's writing in Gita Govinda, Krishna is now bowing down to touch the feet of Radha. And he thought, oh man, I'm really nuts. I, I, what, how can I write such a thing? That Krishna... The Param Brahma, hmm? who, the, 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 who everybody is, is uh, uh, Ekala Ishwara Krishna, Arsabhritya. Krishna alone is the supreme. Everyone else is a servant. And I'm saying he's touching someone else's feet. I, I've, what's become of me? He left the house to get a break. He came back in the house. His wife was eating. He said, "What are you? How, how come you're eating? I, you know, you didn't. I haven't had my dinner yet, and, and you're eating." And she said, "What are you talking about? You just ate. Go back in your room." So he said, "What?" And so he went back in his room. And he, so he opened his book. There, and this all the words. What are the words? Hmm. Anyway, Pada. <laughs> be written in the book. It wasn't his wife who wrote it in the book. So he realized that Krishna had come appearing as himself, eating dinner, went in the house and wrote the words in the book. Hmm? This is this is Gita Govinda. It's a way of speaking about it, of course. That this is a high idea that's not on the scriptural map. It's a very bold idea. It's the whole idea of Vrindavan. We were talking about it earlier today, but terms of Uddhava going there, who, who was Shastravid, he knew everything in the Shastra. He went to Vrindavan to deliver a message to the gopis, and the way they interpreted his message from Krishna, they drew meanings out of it that he couldn't possibly understand himself. So he was being schooled. Well, ostensibly, he was there to school. Hmm? And after that, he wandered around the brudge, wrote a couple of poems, and just chanted them, kind of like a mad person. Hmm? When Gopakumar came to Dwaraka, hmm? just a, just a couple steps now from his uh, from his ideal in Vrindavan, Mathura, and then Vrindavan, hmm? and he's talking with Narada there. And Narada says, "Talk to Uddhava. Where you're going, he's been there. He has some idea about it, better than me. Talk to him. He passed him over to the Sikshaguru of Uddhava." To help Gopu Kumar prepare for entering into into the brudge, so it's a, it's a very um, like off the map place. Mahaprabhu entertained the prayer, the poem of uh, of uh, Ramananda Roy, and and what is the poem? Hmm? That that is the that is the union of Radha and Krishna. Love. 
in love too want to become one. The problem with Radha and Krishna's union was that they became one. So much Radha wanted to become one with Krishna, so much Krishna wanted to become with Radha, that once they did that, then Radha started thinking she was Krishna, and Krishna started thinking he was Radha, and there were two again. So it was, <laughs> this is a problem. So Ramananda Roy is writing about this, how if you take a stone, uh, you know, for grinding spices or something, and you, you grind a stone against a stone, then they merge, right? Hmm? They, they, something like that. He's speaking about it. And then he looks up, and what does he see? He sees Chaitanya Mahaprabhu turn into Radha and Krishna. And Radha and Krishna turn into Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And this is the solution to this problem. Radha Krishna Pranai Vikritir Ladini Shakti Rasmad Rupa Goswami Srubdhamana Goswami says this coming together hmm, of the two one becoming two becoming one and becoming one again hmm. Radha Krishna Pranai Vikritir Ladini Shakti Rasmad Ekat Manovapi Puvi Deham Gatoto Chaitanya Kyam Prakatam Chaitanyakyam uh, the, the one becomes two, becomes one again in a dynamic sense as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So he, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, is the solution to this problem of union where they can't be... They need the third dynamic reality. He saw this, but it's all off the map. And this is where now Gaudiya Vaishnavism has to tell this to the world and to a world where the standard of knowledge is the sacred texts and their ideal is off the map. Map being the sacred texts. Hmm? It's quite a, uh, 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 a, 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 a challenge. They've done a good, 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 good job of it, I would say. And it's, very, uh, it's a very charming idea. It's, it's Gopala Turiyatitaha. You know, the seeds are there in the Upanishads from Gopal Tapani. It's beyond Turiya. Turiya means the fourth. You have the waking, the, the dreaming, and the deep sleep. And then the fourth means transcendental consciousness. Waking consciousness, dreaming consciousness, where the waking sensibilities are closed, the physical world is closed down, the mental world is active in dreaming. And then in deep sleep, when you don't dream, the dreaming world, the mind goes off, turns off, the physical world turns off, but you're still there. What's it like? I can't say. But I feel rested, having come back from there. Hmm? I remembered it. It was restful. Hmm? I can't say anything about it. It was contentless consciousness. Something like that. Hmm? That's pretty far out. And then this is beyond that. <laughs> Way beyond that. Gopala, Turiyati, the fifth, go, the fifth, this is the whole, you see these statements you find in Chaitanya Charter, you take them as, okay, that's standard. These are revolutionary ideas. Prema Pumarto, Mahan, Pranchama Purushartha. What? Go and read all the Upanishads, all the Puranas, Itihasas, everything. You're going to find there's four Purusharthas, four goals of life. Dharma, Artha, Kama, Moksha. You've heard them, right? And Chaitanya Vaishnava says, Panchama Purushartha, the fifth goal of life. It's not in the scriptures. 
It's beyond the scriptures idea. Hmm? So, so our Siddhanta is trying to talk about, trying to explain that, trying to locate that on the on the on the scriptural map, and basically, it's saying the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. This is what he is. We look at him. We study him, and we he is the. He is the uh, the, the, the the Mahabhav. Hmm? He is Mahabhav, and 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 this is fully represented in Radha. And then we give this position to Radha that no one else really wants to give her um, to, to the same uh, extent, if at all. And so we have a sampradaya, we have a lineage. It's based on Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's. Uh, Persona and the analysis and experience of it from the Goswamis. You can say, well, they made this all up. Yeah, it's pretty good, though. <laughs> they did. They made it all up. It's true. <laughs> and everybody's making something up. So that's what we're, we're, we're living in, right? According to materialism, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? They rail against religion because it's made up. Hmm? But the standard of value in materialism, has to be make up your own values, because there are none. There are no real values. You just make them up. So, we made one up. <laughs> Why complain about it? It's nice. It's charming. And it changes your life. Of course, there's the practical side of it. Does it have any practical results? Hmm? Hmm? Does it deliver? And we have so many saints representing that. So, so this is convincing to us, as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was convincing in his own time to the people. So, example speaks louder than precept. But anyway, the, this, this Siddhanta, is my, my point, is a, is a way of talking about that. So, for those of us who have been touched by that and charmed by that, it's very important to us. It's, the, it's a groundwork hmm, out of which the Bhava will arise. We were speaking earlier about how the Goswamis coming from there, if you will, hmm, they're living there as village girls who are uneducated. Hmm? They're so far out of the loop. They don't, like I said, they don't know who's even running for president. Hmm? They, that's good. <laughs> they don't have any idea. They're, they're too, they're too, you can, how can you? If you had to clean them after the cows, it's an endless you know, task. There's, there's never any end to that. Then you've got to milk them in between. So... <laughs> They're very busy, 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 hmm? with practical things, very practical, down-to-earth things. Hmm? And so they appear, and they are depicted as such, as being uneducated people. Hmm? But when they come from there to here, in sadhakadeyas, in practitioners' bodies, like Rupa Goswami, Jiva Goswami, Sanatana Goswami, we find they have so much knowledge. Their command of the sacred text was, is extraordinary. Not only have they command of it, but they have a heart for sharing it. Lokanam hitakaruno. Hmm. Heart full of compassion. And uh, based on that, 
they're sharing it. Hmm? You have to pass through that, of course. Compassionate love, to taste rasa, you have to pass through compassionate love. Hmm? That's the low end. It's high in this world, but it's the low end on the ladder of, of, of love. So, this is the basic standard for the teacher. Lokanam karunayaha paranaguyam. And we cited this earlier. So, they, there's no need for the knowledge there. They come here, there's a need for the knowledge. And those girls, they know quite a bit, hmm, it seems. Again, they, without trying, they educated Uddhava. They took his own message from Krishna hmm, and drew meanings from it that he himself couldn't imagine were, were there. That just turned his head upside down. Hmm? So uh, the point is, once that's how extraordinary Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is, how wh- what he did to the people of his time, you know, the, those who were the followers of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu amongst them, vast majority of the of them mentioned so many as they are in Chaitanya Charitamrita were were literateurs, they were educated people, artisans and uh, poets and authors and and so forth. The intelligentsia of of Bengal was uh, captured by him, and the common people, of course, uh, as well. Hmm? And so many then so many writings about our Eastern Savior, so many um, sacred uh, biographies, many, many of them. Hmm? So, um, he, 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 there's an attempt to describe what he is, and if you, then you gravitate to do that, you go to the standard books of knowledge of the time, and they did a good job of kind of locating him on the map, even when he's off the map, if you will, when the whole idea is kind of sh- beyond the what does Rupa Goswami say in his Namastakam, that the, the sounds of the Upanishads, they're like jewels that emanate light, and all the light is casting a light on two syllables, Krishna. And what did Jiva Goswami say? He said, Mahaprabhu said this, Shrotam Mapi Upanishadam Dure Harikatamritam, Kampashu Pulakadaya, and so on. So the sounds of the Upanishads, this is the, the high, the head, high head side of the revelation, the Upanishads, that the common people can't understand, they need a medium, a priest, through which to understand that. The intonations and so forth, the sounds, the shabda, to hear the shabda, to hear the sounds of the world, that the world has come into being by sound and there are sounds that can take you beyond it, to tune in and hear those, like a dog can hear sounds, that you can't hear, so they could hear the sounds. Hmm? And then they re- tried to re- record that, put that in writing, this is the this is the Shruti. Hmm? And Jiva Goswami said, and Mahaprabhu said this, he says, in Bhakti Sandarbha, Shrotam Mapyupanishadam Dure Harikata Amrita. Where you can go, where you can be transported to by the sounds of the Upanishads, like Neti, Neti, Ambramasmi, Tattvamasi, these Vakyas. Hmm? He said, Dure Harikatamrita. Where you can go by that is very far, distant, Dure, from where you can arrive by Harikata. Hmm? 
characterized by Kampasru Pulakadaya, Mahaprabhu Kirtan Nanitya Gita. Hmm? Do you know it? Manasorasena, hmm. all these things. Hmm. These transformations of ecstasy, a world of ecstasy. Shriyakanta kanta parama purusha kalpataravo dhrumabhumischintamani ganamayi toyam amritam kataganam. This is some attempt to talk about that, that, that realm. And they saw it embodied in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Hmm? So this, this, this Siddhanta is important for us. It takes on an absolute kind of a, um, uh, within our circle, if you will. Now, you, you don't expect that your Siddhanta, if you're talking to another is gonna in, in order for this to be your sadhanta and this to be an absolute for you, you have to develop a sympathetic heart for it, which can come from association. Hmm? So, if you want it to be absolute for other people, you have to create a sympathetic heart in them. Hmm? Yeah. So, as a measure of, it's going to be called shraddha, faith. Hmm? And then, once entering into that world, then it becomes kind of an absolute, even in a while in a broader sense, it's uh, it's somewhat. Uh, um, relative philosophy can only represent that ideal to some extent is the idea. But there are absolutes, as I'm saying. And so the fact that there's an atma that's an absolute in our lineage, it's not in the, it's not in the <laughs> Shankar lineage, the atma's relative, the jivatma. Yeah. Anyway, we don't, we don't follow that. <laughs> That thinking. So there's absolutes for us. Now that there are absolutes for everybody, of course, we think so because we, we, we look at our worldview and, and think that it, it best explains the unexplainable world hmm? um, and gives us some footing to experience it and then some way to, however imperfectly, talk about it. Hmm? See, the more you enter into that, then the, the, naturally the more humble you will become. Hmm? The more gray you will become. <laughs> As you're saying, <laughs> so it seems like a lot of relativity in there. Yeah. Yes. And there are different possibilities, hmm? different bhavas. <laughs> and then you look at it from a different, from the Sakyabhav perspective. Then you look at it from the Madhurya Rasa perspective. You have differences, and emphasis, and so forth. But there are absolutes. Hmm? Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. There's, there's an absolute for us, and we, can, we would argue for everyone that, that amongst the different, of the different um, manifestations of divinity that the world has seen or heard of, hmm? Krishna represents the heart of the absolute. Buddha represents the, the wisdom. Of course, there's wisdom in the heart, too. Hmm? Therefore, his teachings, the wisdom of that, hmm? about the suffering of the world, and how the attachment gives rise to it, it's found in the Gita as well. But anyway, Christ is another representation of the... You can't discount the person. I mean, he was an extraordinary person whose influence still is current 
in the world and in times gone by have produced uh, quite a few mystic uh, people and so forth. So you have esoteric Christianity, you have esoteric uh, Islam in the form of Sufism, and you have the... Uh, uh, and you, as you were speaking saying earlier, we have fundamentalist representations of these, and you have funda- fundamentalist Hinduism and mystical Hinduism, and you've got fundamentalist uh, Gaudi Vaishnavism, and you've got essential Gaudi Vaishnavism as well. And the essential orientation is one where we, where we gravitate towards, well, the essentials and the absolutes and the principles within the Sampradaya. But in a larger sense, of course, it's our worldview, so we say Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. I think there's a good argument to be made. Amongst the different uh, divinities known to the world, people who are declared to be God or divine or by their followers and so forth, Krishna is uh, represents more 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 um, more opportunity, something like that, for interaction, for a, a, a form of the Godhead that can be known more intimately. Hmm? That um, you know, you have exclusivism and you have inclusivism, and then you have pluralism. They're all different. We are kind of inclusivists in, in a sense. Everything's included within it. But, but within Gaudiya Vaishnavism, we're inclusive. What can we say? We have ras, different rasas in there, hmm? that, for example. So we're already kind of built in. So then we have to extend it to other traditions. It was what Bhakti Vinod Thakur did. He was a perennialist. At the same time, he was a Vedantist. So, so very different from a fundamentalist orientation. That there are there are many ways. Not many. There are some, <laughs> and they're ego-effacing, and they afford some measure of trend, of experience within transcendence. Now. Where the Gaudiya school focuses in transcendence, well, it's arguably a, a special place. Hmm? So you want to bring out the yardstick and of objectivity, and even if you want to argue about it with others and they have their point, it's hard to argue with the charm of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. If you reach a point of philosophical, okay, okay, here's the weak part in our philosophical argument, here's the weak part in your attempt to explain the ineffable. Hmm? At least we're both trying to explain the ineffable. Still, we have the trump card that we pull out of this, but ours is more charming. <laughs> That's hard to resist. Yes, it's much more charming than any other ideas. That's true. as a possibility. Hmm? So, very uh, kind of, I think it's very objective to say that, that if you study the Christ, the Buddha, the Muhammad, or whomever, Rumi, Krishna, if you look carefully and you study, you, you're going to find some differences. You're going to find some, a lot of common ground also, and that's beautiful, and, and, and therefore we accept them all as, as uh, um, manifestations of divinity, but different faces, different aspects, and so forth. And you pick which one you want. I don't really don't, don't care in one sense. And you will choose according to your Sukriti anyway, so it's not up to you. How you get influenced, then, then you will be make as if it's your own choice. But you're already chosen by sadhu sangha from some some sect. So just one minute. So, so there are absolutes and there are relatives, and then and then there's a whole other way of 
thinking about it too. There's, there's I talked about a little bit different analogies or different cultural sensibilities that you may package into your presentation that are relative. The Bhagavatam itself makes itself a Purana. In order to fit within the Puranic genre, it has to have certain elements in it. So you understand it's written in a certain way as a Purana. If it's going to be a Purana, it has to have the genealogical table, it has to have um, a, a number of things. Creation stories and so on and so forth. And, um, I think for the Mahaprana, there's ten things. So the Bhagavatam includes all those, but that's all the packaging that's there. Hmm? That's all packaging. Hmm? So it's relative in that sense. And then what's the essential teaching? You know, it's a book about about Rasa. Hmm? Uh, so. There's relativity within the text, and and that doesn't mean it's not important. In, in way, especially, of course, anything is any speech, any talk, any book is going to be most important in one sense in the time that's written. That's why the commentaries are more important than the text as we go forward. When Prabhupada was writing his Bhagavad Gita commentary, he su- he suggested, why don't we just use Ram? Uh, Dr. Radhakrishna's translation of the Gita. And his editor said, Prabhupada, you, you can't do that. That's like plagiarism. He said, what do you mean? It's Krishna's words. <laughs> so the Indian uh, tradition has a different sensibility about that, of course. Um, but he went on to say, my pur- purport is what's important. And then you get people who said, well, I just want to read the translations. You get that kind of response. I don't want to read the purport. I don't want to read the translation. Hmm? But it's like a flower that you touch with the sun and it opens that much much more. This is the purport, the commentary. It's more important. Hmm? So in, in an ongoing way, there has to be such a tradition of, of commentary to hmm, make it uh, accessible. So in a time in which it's written... It's going to draw from the cultural sensibilities of the time to explain the message, and it will have the most impact. Hmm? So you, for Bhagavatam, you know, you get all these nice analogies from India, like camels chewing thorns, you know. I mean, it rings well if you've seen a camel and chewing on thorns, and you go, oh yeah, I got it. It's uh, an example for the sex life. <laughs> it's like a camel chewing thorns. Anyway, <laughs> I won't play it out, but... Uh, you know, it's Bhagavatam is full of those. They don't ring entirely like they don't hit home with us in the same way as if you can draw an analogy from everyday life in in, in America, for example. Hmm? And when you can speak on the teaching and draw your own analogies from the world, when the world is talking to you, hmm? and then you are seeing Krishna consciousness in it, and then when you speak, and then you draw you're drawing those analogies, then it's going to have more impact on the audience. Hmm? So, an ongoing commentarial, you know, tradition. This is this is what we call parampara. This is very much required. New books are required. Hmm? New insight within the parameters of what the teaching is, of course. Which uh, a teaching in which we are all students forever, such as the nature of the teaching. Hmm? So, there's in this sense, there's relativity to the Bhagavatam. Hmm? 
You've got to understand the packaging and what's what's being packaged there. So it's the essential teaching. It's written in the Puranic genre. It's also written as a as a as a ras a shastra. So there are rules for that. I mean, it's a literary contribution. It's a very extraordinary work. The Purana itself, from a literary point of view, it's different than every other Purana. Hmm? Its power and its charm is evidenced by the fact that it's been tr- tr- translated in so many languages. It's been commented. There's over like 80 Sanskrit commentaries on it. How many commentaries are there on the Matsya Purana? Whoever has anybody heard of the Matsya Purana before tonight? So it's a very it's a very special uh, book. That's another whole thing. What what is the ba- the place of the Bhagavatam? Jiva Goswami gave beautiful arguments in his time as to the central position that the Bhagavatam holds within the orbit of the entirety of the sacred texts of the Hindus. We can. Those are great arguments, but we can give arguments today without touching on those arguments as to the 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 the, 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 the position of the Bhagavatam with regard to all forms of religious revelation, its richness, its its nuance, its its uh, the, the 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 extent to which it it sh- sheds light on on the uh, um, on divinity. Hmm? So uh, there are absolutes, and there are relatives, and there are relative absolutes, and there are absolute relatives. <laughs> so, your question? Um, yeah, I guess uh, it has to do with um, <coughs> they, our authentic selves. Our what? Authentic selves? Yeah, and the authentic practice uh, in, in relative to our uh, birth, you know, in our natural birth. So going through our natural birth, we identify with this body, we believe it's our authentic self. Mm-hmm. And then due to our secreti, we converge with a higher authentic self. Yeah. And then we have all these attachments and conditions that have taken place from this presumed authentic self. When does, is, there, is there an authentic self within that? If our secreti is met within this lifetime, is there authentic things that don't have to be done away with. Yeah. 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 In one sense, I understand the question. Yeah. In, in, in the sense of false renunciation, the fundamental Gaudiya Vaishnavism, trying to overextend ourselves. You know, uh, finding the balance. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that, uh, first of all, when you talk about an authentic self, um, there's different ways in which you could think about that. You talked about your authentic self as being um, the the self that you're born with and the environmental um, circumstances that uh, nurture the, it and so forth. And so you're so-and-so from such-and-such place, and this is your mom and dad, and this is your wife and kids and whatever may be the case. Um, so that's... Now, within that self, there can be an inauthentic and an authentic self from a psychological point of view, right? So you could be, um, you know, one of the deplorables, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> um, you might, and then you would need to 
develop your authentic material self that was a little more balanced and, uh, you know, not bigoted and racist and sexist and, and homophobic and everything that goes with those, with those things um, in the name of Jesus or whatever, or in the name of religion. So there's a way that... And now, what, what does that constitute? To make that self an authentic self even while it remains, from an absolute perspective, still an inauthentic self. Hmm? So that's your you know, psychological development. Just like you had to develop physically, uh, you had to develop mentally and psychologically, and there are tools to help us with that. Now, the, the system in, in Vedic culture was this uh, social system, was Varnashram, and the, the, the real point in that uh, system is to bring people to their authentic make their material self authentic hmm? that means to make their material self uh, one that it is a, a balanced human being who's got both feet on the ground knows who they are what their their job is what the goal of life is and so forth unfortunately in the modern society you take out the goal of life there is if there's any goal of life it's it's perpetuating this life with no goal or, or just or making money and I don't know having a successful sex life to, you know there's any number of relative goals but there is no central for the American society goal and purpose to life so when you take that out it's it makes it more difficult to have an authentic material self you take out the, a, a, a goal a, a concerted agreed upon goal of life hmm? so but anyway still there are people who obviously are concerned about being balanced materially within that I'm just saying that you have if, you, if everybody believed in reincarnation it would be a lot easier to bring people into balance materially hmm? uh, if you, but anyway uh, the attempt to to make your how to say it your your yourself authentic even while it remains inauthentic from an absolute perspective is important because it constitutes uh, what we would call a sattvic influence. So to be materially balanced, which is the goal of varnashram, where you have both feet on the ground, you're better su- situated to jump up and touch the stars. Hmm? Right. So whether you're a sudra in the Varnashram system or you're a chatriya, if you're if you're if you are engaging according to your psychophysiological makeup, in in accordance with the prescribed duties that conform with that, you're sattvic. Hmm? You understand? And then so you have a sattvic, you have a goal in life that that, that is transcendental. Hmm? So there's a horizontal development, and then there's vertical development. Hmm? You need, if you want to build a building, you first got to get some horizontal development. In fact, first you got to go down. Hmm? You want to go up, but first you got to go down and build a foundation, and then then wide, and then it can go up, right? So it's important. Like when I have students, someone wants to be my student, I sometimes ask them, "Do you have a job? Do you have a relationship? You got that figured out? Because if you don't, you're out of balance, and you know how well are you going to be able to?" to adhere to the practices when something goes wrong. Even if you've got the job and you've got the, the partner and everything's working, still it can go out of balance 
and then it may make it difficult to, to practice and so forth. So some material balance that's useful, helpful, right? That was the idea of the in the of, of the Varnashram in a sense. I'm not advocating Varnashram, but the, let's take the essence of it and advocate that people should be materially balanced. So you should develop an authentic material self, hmm? okay, that's balanced uh, and in that sense sattvic, and you'll be in a better position to take advantage then of spiritual practice. Just like if you have, you know, some physical disease, you may be impeded in some ways from taking spiritual practice. So if you have some mental imbalance, your capacity to understand the teaching, to imbibe it and so forth, practice it will be limited. So a whole person, if you will, will be better able to participate than a half person. Hmm? That's uh, practical. So there's a place for that. Hmm? Do you understand? And, And that said, as a sadhaka, I mean, we don't. We say that chant Hare Krishna and you'll solve all the problems. You know, okay, fine. But uh, I was, I gave a lecture once, more than once, but <laughs> a long philosophical one. And afterwards, a guy said, "Swami, uh, whatever happened to just chant and be happy?" Mm-hmm. I said, "I don't know. Do you do that?" Mm-hmm. That's, that's why I'm talking. <laughs> So that maybe you'll do that. You're tired of the talk. You're not interested in the talk. But and you and your excuse is, can't we just? We don't need all this philosophy. You just want just chant and be happy. But do you do that? Is that what you do? Just chant and be happy? No. Hmm? So. <laughs> so um, there's things that, that we can. That, yes, if you can't just chant and be happy, maybe there's some things you need to do to to, to put yourself together. Maybe you need to, you know, get some balance psychologically and deal with some issues and so forth, so that they're not haunting you and crippling you from proceeding and so so. There's a place for that. And then other people say, "That's Maya, Prabhu. Psychology is Maya." Hello. So, so it's interesting because the advocacy which you often hear of Varnashram properly understood as an advocacy for bringing psychological balance, and there may be different ways to do that in a society where everybody's born, as they say, less than sudra. Anyway, you know what it means to be in the Varnashram is a whole complicated thing that we're not in it. We just don't happen to be in it. <laughs> but that hardly does that bar us from. Uh, Participating in bhakti, which is our is the power of bhakti, but as much as that may be, it would be great to live in a varnashram society. I would love to live in a varnashram society, and then all I do all day long was tell people to give up varnashram, sarva dharma, put it yaja, mami, come, shut it down, makes it easy. 
This is what you're going to do. Give up the Varnashram. Take shelter of Krishna only. Because in Varnashram, there's worship of many gods and goddesses. So at the end of the Gita, Krishna says, Sarvadharman Prityaja. Give up the Varnashram and just take shelter of me. That would be beautiful. Hmm? So, anyway, so, okay. So, um, but meanwhile, as I say, the essence of the Varnashram is to bring psychological balance to a person so they can be more whole and not, f- I mean, you can only be so materially whole, but as whole as a whole person and you're not being torn in another direction, then you've got your material, you've got your partner, it works, and 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 and, and you've got your space, whatever, and it works, and you got that figured out, and nothing left to do now. If you got a spiritual worldview, then you don't have to extend the space unlimitedly or get another partner on the side, you know, or what, <laughs> you're okay there, and you just give all of your energy to the spiritual practice. So there's some space for, you know, promoting your material well-being, if you will. Hmm? It's not that, for example, all the householders should give all their money. They should give some of it, though. <laughs> and I could use some. But everybody should give some, but everybody shouldn't give everything. Mahaprabhu stopped his householder disciple from being the... Uh, who was it? Hmm. No, somebody else. Maybe Shibananda, somebody. For, anyway, they were, they were, the guy was giving away all his money all the time for Krishna consciousness. He said, you've got to keep some for yourself. This is the preaching of the Mahaprabhu. You've got to keep some money for yourself, hmm? for your family. Some, not all, but some. Keep some. <laughs> so, because different people in different situations are going to need different things in order to have that balance and feel as whole as you can materially so that... You're not trying to fill in that part, but now all your energy can go to vertical, vertical growth. So there's a there's a place for that. Hmm? There's a place for that. And then, once that with the once, as we pursue the ideal vertically, and simultaneously put the horizontal kind of part in place, then we then we very systematically start to dismantle the authentic self, so to speak, right? But now how do we do that? This is very beautiful. So, the more that there's the... You have bhakti sangskar from association, the more you have that influence, what's going to happen over time is at a certain time, you're going to be born in life, and you're going to... Just like we say, bhakti is not inherent in the jiva, but you could be born with bhakti inherent in you if you've got association in the previous life. Hmm? And someone has eyes to see, can see, oh, he has, she has bhakti from the previous life. Hmm. I can see that. And then, and then the, the, there will be a point where the bhakti, sangskars, are playing themselves out in your everyday material life in terms of your preferences and so on and so forth. Hmm? Do you understand? It's a very interesting idea, because you look like an ordinary material person and your choices are material, but actually they're informed 
by bhakti samskars that have something to do with your ideal, your attainment. Hmm? In the paravyom, in your sarup. Hmm? And so at, at a certain point it starts crossing over and then, and then you have the perfected sadhaka deha, protected, perfected practitioner's body moving all by motivation uh, uh, driven by rasic sensibilities and, and so forth and playing out in ordinary ways but take someone to see what's actually taking place what causes that person to think in a certain way it might be similar to another person but it's arising from from bhava hmm? do you understand question Krishnanas you had a question you totally answered it. Okay. Okay, yes. So cool. <laughs> I had a question about Krishna's pastimes. So, I'll give one example. To try to, uh, so, for instance, when Krishna and Subha leave the general assembly of cowherd boys, yeah. going to Radharani, um, because in the scriptures, you know, it just will say, like, Subal. And, but I was wondering, since there's unlimited divine personalities, does that mean, when it mentions a personality in the scripture, does it also mean, in that instance, <coughs> that people who are entering into Subal's group are also there in that instance? Yeah. Yeah, so the, what's mentioned in the scripture are certain paradigmatic people that represent the, for example, in this instance, a certain bhava. Hmm? So the, he's talking about the bhava of a, of a friend of Krishna that is influenced by Madhurya Rasa. Hmm? So his Sakya bhava is like yogurt and the influence of Madhurya Rasa is like sugar in the yogurt. Hmm? So the, it becomes sweeter, and the sweetness is that, he, that that he's a friend who is who Krishna can lean on with regard to his romantic uh, sensibilities, ups and downs. Hmm? Hmm? Who will whisper Radhe in his ear and bring him back to life hmm, when she doesn't want to see him? It's friends like that. So everyone, uh, you know, these ideas are very grounded in uh, our. In a, in a sense, human experience. Krishna is human-like, so we can learn a lot by studying humanity and human psychology about um, about the lila. Hmm? So, you know, there's a place to say that three is a crowd, and sometimes that third person is helpful at the same time, right? So, there's a place for some of Krishna's friends to be involved in intimate affairs of Krishna, and Subal is the principal amongst them. It's said in the 108 names of, of Radha given by Rupa Goswami or by Raghunathas Goswami, Subal Nyasta is one of the names of Radha. Subal Nyasta. It means who dons the form of Subal. Hmm? It means when Radha wants to taste Sakirasa, that is Subal. Hmm? That's a very beautiful idea. You see, this is another important point is that sometimes it's said, well, some in the Madhurya Rasa can taste all the different Rasas because all the Rasas are in Madhurya Rasa. This is a misunderstanding. Hmm? What's in 
the rasas progressively is elements are elements that are in the previous rasas. So there's the elements in dasya in 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 shantarasa are detachment from the world and attachment to Krishna. You go to dasya rasa, those two elements are included in dasya rasa and something more. You go to sakya rasa, those elements are included and something more and so forth. Hmm? But it's an example is given of the elements, right? Earth, water, fire, air, ether. So in ether, space, there is sound. In air, there is sound and touch. In fire, there is sound, touch, and sight. In water, there is sound, touch, sight, and taste. And in earth, there is sound, touch, sight, taste, and smell. But that doesn't mean that holding earth is the same as holding fire. You understand? That doesn't make sense. Hmm? So, someone who's in Madhurya Rasa is in Madhurya Rasa. Someone who's in Sakya is in Sakya Rasa. They may be attracted to or influenced by other Rasas, but the way in which that will play out is those other Rasas will augment the Rasa that they are in. Hmm? Like sugar will augment the yogurt. Now, there are mixed rasas also. There's mixed rasa of sakya and vatsalya, sakya and dasya. But there cannot be a mixed rasa, sankul, of sakya and madhurya in the same way. Why? Because, oh no, we're just friends. Do you understand? People look at you and they say, you look like a nice couple. Oh no, no, we're just friends. <laughs> don't get it, don't get that confused. We're just friends. Hmm? So, f- that friendship, or, or you cannot mix Maduria and, and, and Batsalia like that. That would be very bad. Hmm? That's Donald Trump's thing. <laughs> That's what he said. You can't do that. <laughs> you can't get elected with that kind of perspective. Hmm? So, so, Again, you can learn about this world of transcendence by looking at our own world. It's very helpful. Hmm? So these friends of Krishna that we're talking about, they're, they're, they're sympathetic to his romantic activities and they have a role to play in there. And their sakyarasa exceeds in intimacy that of vatsalyarasa, which ordinarily exceeds in intimacy sakyarasa. So it's very extraordinary. Hmm? And the touch of the Madhurya is, it brings it to a very high position. So Subal is the, is the perfect example of that. Hmm? Okay? Subal Nyasta. When Radha wants to taste Sakuras, she has to become Subal. And then there's the Don Kelilila where Krishna's, Radha's lamenting, I wish I could be Subal. Because look at him, standing in the public like this, arm in arm with Krishna. Hmm? I cannot stand like, with, uh, walk arm in arm with him in the public. He's so fortunate. And the Sakurasa Bhaktas will say, just see, even Radharani says Sakurasa is the best. <laughs> so these are the subjective, you know, perspectives that the, the, so your question, just to give some, some background. You know these things, but for the sake of this, I'm explaining. So Subal represents a bhava. Hmm? That Bhava has unlimited expressions. 
So if you imbibe the ba- the bhava subal from through sadhu sangha and you cultivate that and culture that, hmm, then within the context of that sakibhav that's that's influenced, let's say, by Madhurya, then you're going to be a player in the lila who's unique within that bhava. So the, what the bhava, what the swarup shakti of Krishna does is constantly manifesting in newer and newer ways for the pleasure of Krishna. So some people ask, well, if your, if your relationship with Krishna is eternal, how can it have a beginning when you enter the spiritual world? You're a new devotee there. Everything there is beyond time. So some have a problem with it. So, but the point is that the Sarup Shakti is always manifesting. <laughs> That's what it does in newer and newer ways to serve Krishna. So it's no new. It's not a new thing. It's the it's the common experience. Hmm. So, in a new way, within the context of that bhava, hmm, the Sarup Shakti will express itself through you and your willingness to be so influenced. So, Subal represents that that bhava. Hmm. But there may be many, many following in the wake of that Baba, then there's there's this unlimited coward boys going with Subal and Madhu Mangal and Kinkini and this one and that one, so many. Unlimited. Even while it said the whole fifteenth chapter of the tenth canon, which is the Sakura center of the Bhagavatam, it, it it it's a beautiful glorification of Balaram for so many verses. Hmm? The Dhenakasura Lila, Krishna is glorifying Balaram, praising him and praising him and praising him. Hmm? The, re- the secret reason behind that, why he's praising them, is because he's going to leave some of the coward boys with Balaram hmm? at a certain point so that he can go off on the pretext of something else and meet with Radha and bring those boyfriends with him who will be useful for that that service. He's preparing them all. And then he says, by the way, there's a famous astrologer that just come to town. Hmm? And I and we should take advantage of his association, but we can't all go and break down his door. So, so you guys stay here and Subal, you come with me and this one and they go, right? Hmm? But unlimited boys are going, and unlimited boys are staying. And these are just the limitations of talking about it. So as they say it's kind of like an outline. Hmm? Even the Leela Grantas, the Leela books of the books, they come in outline. And in the outline, certain you can see certain... Who are the coward boys that are that are always appearing? Subal's always appearing. Madhu Mongol's always appearing. These are Priyanarmasakas who are sympathetic to the cause of Radha. They're Priyanarmasakas who are not sympathetic to the cause of Radha. Just like they're Manjaris, not sympathetic to the cause of Radha, but to the cause of Chandravali and so forth. Hmm? You see, so there's a certain window of opportunity that the Gaudias are giving us. Hmm? That's one of them. But yes, unlimited, unlimited, unlimited boys go with him. And the feeling as if there's only a few of us. <laughs> Something like that. Does that help? Yeah, you can go. You can go there. Hmm? I'll give you a blessing for that. Yeah. So I have a question going back to what you were talking about. Question. Yeah. And um, I'm just trying to learn more about this relative absolute. You're talking about it a lot lately. Like, um, in your new book, it's discussed some. Um, um, 
what you wrote, right? Like just common. Yeah. But recently. So um, I'm just trying to understand, like you're saying, part of it is the packaging. Yeah. Um, and I feel like there's different layers of relativity. Yeah. Like you're saying, there's some parts, there's some analogies or some things that can be proven incorrect. Mm-hmm. You know, science and more studies, like there's not bugs biting babies in the womb and flesh, right. and we know that. And there's different instances like that. But um, there also seems to be, then there's another aspect that's more like the oceans of milk or giant mangoes falling and creating. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm just wondering because then there's so much stress about how we're supposed to read the whole Bhagavatam and that the progression to Krishna's Leela is important mm-hmm. to read it all. But yeah. I'm hearing you say, like, that, you know, the fifth canto isn't necessarily for devotees. Yeah. No, I didn't say that, but I'll explain it. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, the whole book is important, but it, and it's all beautiful and 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 should be read. But but you, but you read it, you know, to understand it. The fifth canto is full of. It's all about Shruti Bhakti. There's this, this, it begins with the story of Priyavrata Maharaj. If you study the story of Priyavrata, that's what gives rise to Parikshit's question later on in the sixteenth chapter of the of the fifth canto, when he asks him, "Tell us about the world, the universe, the material energy of of God," because that is another way of thinking about him and to think about him is good. Hmm. And so he, he says, because you were talking earlier about Priyavrata and how he had a chariot and he became a second son and in this chariot he made what, seven continents or something by riding across the sky and so forth and so on. Hmm. So could you? So he wants to pick up on where that kind of left off and it kind of like a question about what you were talking about earlier, he says. You know, we were talking about this earlier. Can we go back to that just like you did? Okay. So um, so if someone was just to tune in now, they might not get the whole picture unless they went back and listened to the tape and what was the question. Anyway, so so you've got to go back and you look at that. So Priyavrata's his, his life is being talked about. He, he was the sec- made a se- became a second son, a cherry going across the sky. He he was able to change, make days shorter and longer or something. That, that, I forget the exact detail, but but if you if you look at it carefully, what's being talked about is is that he's a devotee. He's a yogi. He can conquer over nature. Hmm? Is what's being talked about. That's what's being taught there. Hmm? It's not talking about. It's a way of talking about that. If you read the text, you'll see. Oh, he he he. It, it's speaking about his bhakti and the power of his yogic bhakti is talked about in a particular way. How he's able to conquer over the world and so on and so forth and do these miraculous things. That's what's important to draw out of that. Hmm? And then. That if your heart is sympathetic for the message of the Bible, that's what you'll resonate with. And the other is, is kind of the packaging. Hmm? And so then, then he goes into the, the story of um, Bharat Maharaj, goes over a few chapters from Bharat Maharaj to Bharat Maharaj as a deer to Judd Bharat, and the conversation with Rahugan. It's all about 
Shuddha Bhakti. Hmm? It's a very important canto. And then in this one section, the last section from maybe 16th to 20-some chapter is this cosmographic, you know, description of the world and Jamba Juice and all that. <laughs> uh, and so forth. Hmm? And at the beginning, Prichet Marsh asks, and if you study the grammar, you can see he's not asking for himself. And Vishwanachakrati Thakur makes this point. So, all I'm really talking about is really reading the Bhagavatam really carefully with good association and reading the commentaries and so forth. And then we'll see, oh, what is this converse, this part about? The book is saying it, and especially you can draw that from the commentaries. And Parikshit Marsh is not asking for himself. He's Because he, the teaching of the Bhagavatam is that Parikshit Marsh has adhikar, eligibility for Shuddha Bhakti. Hmm? So he can meditate directly on the form of Bhagawan. Hmm? But a person who is a yogi, who's factoring some bhakti into their yoga, these people can't come and sit in front of the deity and that's going to be their meditation. It's too simple for them. They've got a different psychology. Yoga is all about chakras and subtle way, pathways and so on and so forth. And and and, and so Parikshit Marsh is asking not for himself. So the implication is he must be asking for other people in the audience. Hmm? And Vishwana Chakravitaka concludes he's asking for <coughs> bhakti mishra yogis, not yoga mishra bhaktas, but bhakti mishra yogis. Yogis who mix some bhakti and it's kind of a lower end spiritual practice from our perspective. Hmm? And so then Parikshit Mar says, well, all right, I will tell you about the material energy of Bhagawan, but let me preface it with this statement. It is a transformation of the gunas. That's what it is. It's like three shells, you know. Where's the P? It's like they're constantly moving. It's constantly in flux. It's a transformation of the gunas. That's what it is. In essence, the physical world, as understood by the rishis, comes out of the, psych- the psychic world. So in the psychic realm, they concluded, by studying their own psychology, it's okay, that they determined that I have conditions of contentment, psychologically, of discontent, and of delusion. I experience contentedness, discontent, and illusion. This is what we call sattva, Rajas and Thomas. Hmm? And so they posited that the physical that comes out of the psychic, these elements are also um, present. Hmm? And, and that's what the world is. At the very core, hmm? this is what the world is. Sattva, Rajas and Thomas in flux, in transformation. So this is how Sukadeva answers the question in a rather complete way. But then he says, and obviously, for the sake of the audience who Prick is asking on behalf of, I will say something about the Bulok, as I've heard it from authorities, in other words, how it's represented in other Puranas. Hmm? So he launches into this description. Hmm? And so, if you read the book carefully, then you understand what that section's about. Hmm? And then you don't give it the kind of inordinate 
kind of emphasis that some devotees do, which, uh, you know, to be fair, they Prabhupada thought of using it as a preaching strategy hmm, to undermine faith in the scientific community that at the time, and, and as we see today, is becoming atheistic. As I say, science was born as a Christian, modern science. Over time, it became agnostic. Now it's you know, juvenile and it feels really strong. An adolescent feels like it's going to take over the world. And it's become atheistic and proud. If it is to survive, it will have to become a mystic. This is where the meeting hmm, of religion and science comes, where observation through the senses and inward introspection, they meet these two in mysticism. Hmm? Otherwise, religion and, and science seem to be, and modern philosophy that's informed by scientific data or certain interpretations of it that are materialistic is materialistic. So, um, so Prabhupada thought to, to, you know, he had some students who were scientists and he would ask them questions or ask them to challenge him and so forth. But they were very timid to, to challenge, actually, in, in, in many respects. And they were young. Prabhupada said, my children, my grandchildren are coming, but my children are not coming. He lamented like this. It means if you got, you know, some of you are 50, 60 plus years old here, so it's different than when you're 20 and you got a little more to offer from of experience and so forth, and you're a little less likely just to be, you know, taken away by a statement without examining it, thinking about it. And so, Prabhupada, the point here is that Prabhupada wanted that input. That's what he was saying. I want that input. Another place he said to Sridhar Maharaj in a letter, I only shortcoming is I have no one to consult with. They make this picture of Prabhupada like he knows everything at all times and whatever he says is absolute in all times and all circumstances in every way and, and, and so forth. It's a misunderstanding of how spiritual life actually plays out. Hmm? When Chaitanya Mahaprabhu went into, went into a trance, hmm, he couldn't relate to the external world. Hmm? To relate to the external world, you have to come out of samadhi. Now, your relation will be backed by that experience of samadhi and how you'll interact, but we see Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in external consciousness and internal consciousness. Hmm? Prabhupada's, and if you're in internal consciousness, then they're, 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 that's... Well, we see how effective Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. I saw Prabhupada many times speaking to me. He appeared to be wrestling himself down from another space to answer my questions, to talk to me personally. I was appreciating that. Wow, that's something <laughs> to to be willing to do that. So, so, and what does it mean to be all knowing? It means to know there's there's nothing else needs to be known. <laughs> I have no more. I have no more desire to know. My intellect has been consumed, completely consumed. Hmm? It's been overwhelmed. Its capacity to, to 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 know is is is. I know something that it can't know. And unto itself, it can't know it, and I know it, and it's a feeling, and it's a feeling of 
contentment. I know now. Now I know. Hmm? That's knowing everything. That's not that you know everything. And who would want to? Hmm? Right? To know Krishna, to love Krishna, this is to know everything. That's what he says in Gita. What's the king of knowledge? Uh, to absorb your mind in me. Uh, yeah, that's all. Hmm? So, therefore, Prabhupada said, I'm not omniscient. You know, the famous conversation like that. And he, I would see that Prabhupada would have certain opinions also, and that if he would get other information, he would change his opinions about things. Naturally, he was a normal, you know, rational sadhu. <laughs> so, we had experience. Prabhupada told us to stop doing something because he heard about it from Kirtananda Swami. We were doing this. We were wearing secular clothes to sell books. And Kirtananda Swami wrote to Prabhupada said that they were again becoming hippies, wearing long clothes and ordinary clothes and so forth. Prabhupada wrote back, he said, this must be stopped immediately. We were in Los Angeles at the time. So we got a letter and we realized, hmm, that Prabhupada's been misinformed. We, we, we don't want to wear these clothes at all. We just, it's an austerity to wear them. But we're thinking it will serve his purpose better because we can sneak out to the airport where it's illegal and, and right. send books all over the world, something like that. So we wrote back to Prabhupada to explain the situation. And then it changed. And then he wrote about it in the Bhagavatam. And he wrote about it in the Chaitanya Charitamrita. And he said, and Narada Muni, he came in disguise, so we are also coming in disguise. He tried to get some scriptural support <laughs> for it. And Prataparudra Maharaj was the king, and he changed into the Vaishnava dress. And so sometimes the Vaishnavas are changing the dress for the purpose of something like that, he said. So he, 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 he so, that's just one instant, but if you get, you be functioning on certain information, and then you say, Prophet, actually it's like this, and, so they and then like that. And he would dismiss something, he might dismiss modern science, and if, if he could use modern science, he'd take it. Oh, they found that, that's right, yes. You know, some, so, um, yeah, so, um, to, even understand what what is what is the experience of a, of, a, uh, of a, an advanced devotee or a siddha that's very, very much misunderstood in the Vaishnava community today, hmm? um, and the text. So the text there, fifth canto of the Bhagavatam. Prabhupada had a strategy. He thought he would use it. He asked the science scientists, and they gave him certain feedback. And he Prabhupada pushed back. I mean, he was pretty pretty strong. He would push back, and he pushed back, and you shut up. Hmm? But if you were 50 years old or 60, you might have said, well, probably, that's probably not going to fly over here, and this and this from the reason and so forth and so on. That's one thing. Um, the prophet didn't have that kind of input, and he wished that he did. And he, so he evolved certain strategies based on the input that he had. Hmm? And then that's one thing in the time. And now it's like, what, I don't know, 40-some years later, right? Things have changed. So much more information now we have to deal with. Are we supposed to just ignore all that information? I found Prabhupada was a hound for information. Hmm? When we used to go on a walk with Prabhupada, whenever I was on a walk with Prabhupada, Prabhupada would ask me, so, Tripurari Marsh, what are they saying? Because I was always in touch with the public, selling books. and so he would ask, What are they saying? He would want input. And he would want to give arguments. He, was a, he wanted to know what they were saying. Well, they're saying a lot and they're doing a lot that wasn't going on 40 years ago. Now they're on Mars with some rover and 
who knows where else, right? Or what else? So, so he wanted to have, he wanted to be informed about the arguments, the trends of thought at the, of the time, and so forth, and to be able to respond to them. Hmm? So are we just supposed to ignore all that now and go to, and, 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 and run with the preaching strategy of 40 years ago? That was never, he was never able to play it out entirely hmm? at the time. So we're supposed to play it out in some some way now by building a, a temple that that tells you what the fifth canto is and and you're gonna you know defeat modern science or something and tell them the, the world the earth is flat. I mean, that's just not going to work very well. It's it's kind of infantile in a way. But look what Prabhupada wanted to accomplish. What was his purpose? He basically wanted to undermine. Scientific materialism. That's what he wanted to do. He had a particular strategy. There could be any other number of strategies. And a thoughtful disciple will come up with a strategy that will be practical in the time and circumstances in which we live and and try to put that in place to the best of his or her ability hmm? to serve the purpose. What? You don't want to build a temple in my poor? That's you must be in my you don't like Prabhupada. You know, it's like what's the form and what's the substance? And you know, it may be a nice project. I don't know, I haven't been there, but I heard it's largely about the fifth cano and, it's, and the earth is flat, some people say. I mean, I'm, again, I'm not an expert on what they're building over there, but I know what Prabhupada's strategy was, what he wanted to accomplish. I would do it an entirely different way if I was to be asked. I would, I have the whole idea, I won't go into it, but what I would do in my form. But, but anyway, so, um, so there's a, re- there's a reason that some of these devotees, for example, are preoccupied with the fifth canto thing, and it's a really important part of the book, and so this probably want to use it as a preaching strategy. But if if we reflect on it now in the ways I'm talking about, I think you can see that well, you put it in its place where it, where it fits in the Bhagavatam, what it is, and so forth, and uh, and then so to answer your question, how do you know that? Well, you read the book. If you read it carefully, then you can see what fits in 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 and not. And, um, does that help? Yeah, you have to hear, you know, you're my stipple, you have to hear from me and, and hear these essential kind of currents that, you know, reoccur in my talks again and again. And, and the, you know, the book tells what it's about in the beginning. Satyam Param Dimahi. That's what it's about. Meditation on the Absolute Truth. Hmm? That's what it's about. It's all about Ananya Bhakti, Shuddha Bhakti. And there are many examples of it. There are many stories in the Bhagavatam, right? You have to look what the story is saying. Some of them are saying very simple things, like stories about kings who had everything and were dissatisfied. That's a pretty basic lesson. It might go over chapters. Hmm? We know that intellectually, but we don't know it in terms of how we live our lives. We still seek satisfaction often through acquisition. The Bhagavatams, and then there's the stories of the of the the rishis, the mystics, like the whole story of Subari Muni, and he's underwater and he's meditating. So, what's the whole point of that whole story? Hmm? The story that, that that just the yoga itself and restraining the senses is not as comprehensive of a means of solving the problem of material existence as, as bhakti is, which is much more user friendly, hmm? right? He became distracted 
because he saw fish underwater copulating. He lost it all. Well, it's a lot easier if you could have a romantic relationship with God. <laughs> you solve the problem. <laughs> uh, be careful about that one. <laughs> so. But like I said before, someone asked me, Swami, is there any real, I mean real sex life in the spiritual world? And I said, no, you don't understand. There's no real sex life in the material world. Hmm? So this is only a, only a facsimile, a shadow here, what goes on there. So, you you know, it takes time, and, and but, but it's about Sudha Bhakti. It's about you read the, you read the Goswami, like, read Brihat Bhagavatamrita. This is the essence of Srimad Bhagavatam. What's it about? It's a, it's a study of the different religious and spiritual possibilities in life. Hmm? and analyzing them objectively and coming to the conclusion that there is a there is there is a an acme of transcendent experience called Gopi Bhav and there's a place that corresponds with it called Goloka, a realm that corresponds with it. That's what the Bhagavatam's about. So then you, you, you look at the different stories and you see how they're either talking directly about that or they're how they're talking indirectly about it by showcasing something other than it and the shortcomings of it. Hmm? Yes? That's quite a question. I don't. I, I'm not sure if I understand it entirely, but I think that let me say just one thing to, about that: that that we do teach that unconditional love is is a, it's an interesting uh, term, and our 
um, interpretation of that would be a, 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 that it, it is a love that is not conditioned by the influence of the mind and the senses that um, cause us to feel wanton and thus to live a life on the take um, in some measure, regardless of how philanthropically or altruistically we may be um, oriented, which is a good thing. Um, when we rise above the influence of the mind and the senses, which cause us to feel lacking and wanton to one extent or another, then we are full in the self and we're in a position to give, especially if we've done that in the context of bhakti, because now not only are we are ourself unfettered by the body-mind complex, but we are also infused with, 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 with bhakti. So we're really in a position to love unconditionally because not only is our love not tinged or hindered by our sense of need hmm, uh, to take from others and from the environment, but also we have an object to give our love to who can take it unlimitedly hmm, and, and reciprocate in kind. So this is unconditional love. Now that said, um, how, you know, to explain that to people, I just did that, but um, you could try that, but, uh, but otherwise, at the same time, the, the, there are people that are not going to understand that that well or relate that well to that in as much as that may also sound like raining on uh, the party of altruism, uh, philanthropy, being a good person in this world and, and, and being a cop-out and so forth. And so I think that that that, that um, one has to uh, encourage acts of giving even when they are self-motivated, even when they are not properly centered in, on an object that can fully reciprocate because acts of giving, if promoted, um, even if done incompletely, are nonetheless um, predisposing us in, in, a, in a direction of, 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 of love and a giving that's actually wise. So the Gita makes us the case for this in the 12th chapter where it's talking about bhakti and it, and it, well, it begins in one sense, in the section I'm speaking of, talking about rag, bhakti, the high ideal, it ends up on the other end. If you can't do this, you do this. If you can't do this, you do this. If you can't, I think Prabhupada's purport somewhere says, just give somewhere to somebody, somehow, hmm, start giving. And the giving is very powerful, even if it's conditioned, um, you know, materially and, uh, and, 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 and limited in that sense. Uh, it can inform us gradually in time. The object of service, the, the service itself can inform us so that the object of service becomes more um, honed, if you will, and we'll become more disposed towards and more sympathetic for a, an extended idea of unconditional love. So we should, in one sense, encourage people who um, who... That would be my approach. Who 
advocate unconditional love but don't understand it as we do and from our perspective and argue and reasonably so is really not what it's being talked about but I would encourage it and then I would try to, try to extend on that I would just try to build on that rather than to tear it down and say you know you're just a new age quasi yogi out there bhakti fest be in the bhav t-shirt you know <laughs> you know, nightmare from the from the bhakti orthodox perspective, um, but uh, <laughs> try to kind of like take them from there somehow. And you know, everything is not uh, by example, and uh, and extend upon the idea. You know, they they got the kind of the right idea, but it needs to be fine tuned, something like that. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but those are my thoughts. On the matter, Bhakti Devi ki jai, Mahaprasad ki jai. Please take prasad. Take prasad. Okay. What's the time now? Seven thirty. Okay. What else? I'll try. I'll try to give briefer answers now. So, are relationships in the material world, those relationships are many different kinds. When we express love, when we say, I love you, Mom, I love you, my lover, I love you, my friend, I love you, my child. Yeah. Is that a real love? Uh, I, I, it's a, just as real as spiritual love? But just it's as real as you are. <laughs> it's as real as I am. How real are you? It's just a temporary, um, <laughs> it's temporary, right? Yeah, it's not, it's not wise. It, it's 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 not um, it's not informed because if you don't know what you are, then your attempts to love are going to be limited. Um, so this so just like if you want to love, then in, uh, let's say you want to love a child. So let's say I have a baby, I'm holding her in my arms, and I pass her over to you. Can you hold the baby for a minute? So you hold the baby, the baby starts crying. And I go outside, so you're you're concerned the baby's crying. You think, well, okay, there's a bottle. Let me give the baby some milk. Stop crying. So you give the baby the milk because you love the baby. You don't want to see her cry. But then she starts crying that much more, and I come and say, what are you doing? And she, well, she started crying, so I give her the milk. No, she's she's crying because she's got too much milk. She's got gas in her stomach or something. You know, so so you you had the right intention, but you weren't informed. You didn't have knowledge, mm -hmm. so your attempt to love was actually. Uh, right, right. Understand? Knowledge. Yeah. Right, right. Like from the sacred preface. So to know who you are, then that's important for loving. If we don't know who we are, 
then we're going to love from an uninformed um, position, and that uninformed position is one that that is of in need or perceived need, and and so on. So I mean, it's what can I say? It's it's a reflection, it's a semblance of 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 love, hmm? and that's not all bad. We can learn from that. But the hmm? love is authentic. It's real. Hmm? It is real love. It's just temporary. Uh, is it expressed as real? Is it a real expression, or is it false? It's a material emotion, so it arises from the mind. Mm-hmm. It arises from the mind. So and spiritual. What we say is that there are spiritual emotions. They don't arise from the mind. Mm-hmm. They arise from the swarup shakti, from bhakti herself. <laughs> Making her ingress so to the Atma. Not, it's not real. Well, I mean, nothing's real here. It's Everything's real. here today and gone tomorrow. Your daughter's not real. Your wife's not real. She could become your husband in the next life. <laughs> so saying I love you is pointless. No, it's not. Not at all. It's not pointless. No. If you have a role to play, then you should play it well. If if you find that you're in a drama, you should play the role well, especially if you don't have a choice to get out right away. <laughs> and that's you find out you woke up, you're in God's dream, and this is the role you're playing right now. It's Mahavishnu's dream. It's called Shristi Lila. We're living inside of it now. The information is, you're in a dream, and so that really changes things. I am part of somebody else's dream, okay. I'm not, like, ready to take over the world now. <laughs> a rugged individual here, charting my own course and, and so forth. Um, that's kind of a game-changing. So I'm I'm a player in, in, in Mahavishnu's dream, the Shristi Lila. And this is my role as it's playing out now, the karmic role. And so I should play it well, hmm? So I should acting like you love one another, but it's not real. Well, I, I, I wouldn't put it quite like that, hmm? um, uh, because you try to play the role and really get into it, and so if you can get into your role materially, but still know that it's a role, there's a way in which by doing that, playing the role, you'll be better able to transcend it. Hmm? And express real love. Right. Jai. Exactly. Thank you, so, so you should you should love your partner. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 your partner, you know, I mean, if of course that's the beautiful thing about bhakti. In bhakti, you can have friends. In bhakti, you can love other other others. In Advaita Vedanta, there's nobody else to love. There's nobody to give the love. There's so in bhakti, not in yoga. In yoga, Siddhanta also you can't have friends. Hmm? So in bhakti, then in these paths, yoga and jnana you advance by detachment. In bhakti, we advance by attachment, by attaching ourselves to other devotees. As much as your friends and your circle of friends and relationships are devotees, interested in bhakti, then. Attaching yourself to them and loving them. Hmm? That's real love. 
That's real love. Attaching yeah. yourself to your friends that are devotees. Yeah. Hare Krishna. That's real love. Yeah. Hare Krishna. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, there you go. Thank you, Maharaj. I love you. Oh. <laughs> Hare Krishna. Very nice. I love you. I love you too. Thank you for being my friend. It's a pleasure. We'll have to come and visit you in a, in a Asheville, right? You're in Asheville, living in Asheville? Yeah. Downtown. Okay. Yeah. You know Amal Sham? Pardon me? Do you know Amal Sham, my student there? I don't really know many devotees, I'm afraid. Okay. I don't have many friends. <laughs> He's not here, huh? Oh. Oh. Yeah, that's a good one. Good practice. Wow. What a beautiful night. Practice makes perfect. Yes, well, probably just say that the closest thing to love in this world is, is the love of the parents for the children because the children don't give back often. You have that experience. <laughs> But you give anyway. So a sadhu's love is like that, as described in the Raslila. A sadhu's love who's, who loves even when people don't give back. Hmm? So materially speaking, the closest thing to that, the property used to say, was the parental love. Hmm? So, motherhood and all that, fatherhood. Oh. Almost every day. Okay. And it's not effective. It's a waste of my time. <laughs> I need somebody to come with me. Any volunteers? Are, are you a musician? I'm not. I just sing and clap. Oh. I can't even play the cartels. Oh, okay. But people... You could use some accompaniment, yeah. <laughs> my guru does. Abhidu Maharaj Kijai. Kijai. He gave me this amazing lesson that I could give to others. It isn't mine, but it's ours. Very good. And, uh, I miss him and I love him so much. Abhiduk Maharaj Kijai. Jai! Jai. <laughs> I know him well. He's been here before. <laughs> <laughs>